Well, good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. Good to be back here with you. Uh, thankful, thankful for Brother Jerry, for Pastor Nathan preaching the last two weeks. Really thankful that our church has been so blessed with so many faithful men, brothers who preach the Word of God and proclaim it for us. Pastor Steve and I spent the last two weeks or so in South Asia and working there to strengthen our local partners and investing and learning from our leadership there and then seeing the needs, but also going into uh, one of the most difficult places. If we think of South Asia, we recognize that the vast majority of the people groups in the world that have not heard or even know of the gospel exist there. And so by God's grace, uh, we have joined together with our International Mission Board to try to get the gospel there as fast as we can. Because it's been said many times, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And so our desire is to join up. So it was a blessing to be able to be gone. Thank you so much for allowing me that privilege. And the reason why the gospel hasn't got to these places is because they're hard to get to. And they're difficult. And in many of those places, Satan has such a hold over the people that they have no desire for the gospel and no heart to bring it in. So we see great persecution. And Pastor Stephen and I witnessed that even firsthand of those who were loving and believing in Jesus Christ in difficult places being persecuted for the gospel. So pray for them and we come alongside them in the work and really thankful, just thankful for our church. Right now, two teams in Los Angeles. We have one serving and, and working with the churches there. We have another team going to take care of our church planters in a marriage retreat. Um, we have another team going to South Asia in just a few short weeks, again, to reach those people with the gospel. So I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your generosity, for your love and your care and your heart uh, to, to reach the nations with Jesus Christ. This morning, our attention turns to, uh, I, I'm jet lagged. A little bit. The first sermon went like 45 minutes over. Um, this one will probably be a lot shorter. But I spent half the week worried about, is it Haggai or Haggai? You know what I'm saying? That's what happens when you're jet lagged. So I'm going to go with Haggai as my baseline. If I slip up and say Haggai, it's fine. I found out at 2 a.m. you can pronounce it either way. That's also when I shaved. There's nothing else to do at 2.30 in the morning, so I might as well shave. So, we're good to turn to the book of Haggai this morning and look there together. Uh, we're down to the final three of our minor prophets. Started with 12, we're down to the final three. And these final three, uh, it tells us that our summer is almost over as we look toward August. Uh, the final three prophesied, and we'll speak to this in just a minute, I'll explain it, but prophesied to the people of Israel after they returned from the exile in Babylon. Haggai just simply identifies himself as the prophet. In fact, when you see his name in other places in the Old Testament, it just simply calls him that, Haggai the prophet. It says it even here in his own book and in Ezra and Chronicles, Haggai the prophet. His dates are exact. There's many of these prophets that we've talked about. We have trouble finding what date they were writing exactly. We knew the time. We knew maybe several years span, possibly. But not Haggai. Haggai tells us, or Haggai, see there, I did it already. 
He tells us exactly when he was writing. And if you take his dates and the times that he gives us and, and move it over to our modern calendar, he's prophesying between August and December of 520 B.C. His audience is unique as well. He doesn't just prophesy to the all, the, all the nation of Israel. He prophesies to two people. Zerubbabel, say that with me, Zerubbabel. Some, some words are just fun to say. Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel being the governor, Joshua being the high priest. If you know the structure of Israel, then you recognize that there were three offices. There was the prophet, the priest, and the king. And in here you see these three offices at work. You see the prophet who's giving God's word to the priest who's standing in between God and his people as the representative on their behalf and on God's behalf. And then you see the governor or the king who's supposed to rule the people in light of God's commandments. And so you see these three at work here. Haggai the prophet, Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest. And Haggai's message is found in the passage we read earlier that I want to read. This is the heart of it. Not all of it. We'll see that. But I want to read this again. We read it together. Allow me, if you will, to read it again in Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, verse 4. Haggai chapter 2, verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the, of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this happens this morning, that your peace will come as we see the great glory of your name and your son, Jesus Christ, on display. That we will meet you here. You will meet us here. And that whatever you have us to do, whatever you're calling us to do as individuals, as a church, we will be faithful to do it, Father. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Like all the other prophets, the historical background of Haggai is quite important. You don't always have to know the circumstances and the background to get something out of the text. But when you do know the background and when they're prophesying and who they're prophesying to and what's behind the story, the text becomes much fuller, much richer, much truer for us to understand what's happening. Remember that, that key date, 586 B.C., 586 B.C. is when the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, captured Jerusalem. He came down and destroyed the city, carried off the vast majority of the inhabitants, took them back to Babylon, and there, on that day, he deliberately destroyed the temple, the temple of Israel. The temple was the center of worship. It was where God lived and dwelt with his people. It's where you found the presence of God. So if you wanted to know the presence of God, you would go to the temple. And there, this temple had stood for 400 years. And you can remember the beauty and the majesty of this temple. This was Solomon's temple that the scriptures tell us about. 
It was glorious. It was beautiful. And it stood as the center of the worship of the people of God, the heart of who they are and what they were to do. This temple was destroyed. Much of this has already been seen in the Minor Prophets. We've seen how God said he would do this. We've seen also this is not just the theme of the Minor Prophets. This is the theme of Isaiah and Jeremiah. In fact, the book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah is Jeremiah looking out over the destroyed city of Jerusalem and seeing that the temple, there's no stone left on another, and he's lamenting what has been lost because of the sins of the people. When the people are taken back to Babylon, this was known as the exile period. They were exiled, taken back. During the exile, there's books like Daniel. That's where we learn of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel in the lion's den. There in Babylon, under that oppressive government of Nebuchadnezzar. And we learn what happened there in those places. But after 586 B.C., over the next 70 years, like so often happens, these kings and nations that become great begin to, to diminish and become less. Babylon lost its strength and was conquered by a man named Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire. When Cyrus conquered Babylon, he discovered what Nebuchadnezzar's plan was. Nebuchadnezzar would conquer these places and take their inhabitants and bring them in and try to assimilate them into his life and, and use them for building and for work and for other things. So he would bring all of these different peoples into Babylon and try to control them. And it was too hard. Cyrus says, this is crazy. There's too much to do with this. So Cyrus, not liking or wanting to manage all of these misplaced people, he made a decree and his decree was not only to send them back, but for them to go back and reestablish their national gods. In other words, for the people of Israel, this meant they were to go back and rebuild the temple. Now, it's important to note here, <clears throat> excuse me, not only did the prophets tell of God's judgment, we've seen that. In fact, if we go through these prophets, that's what we've seen mostly, right? The prophets have told, because of your sin, God's judgment is going to come, so repent. The prophets had told them, because of your sin, God's judgment is going to come, so repent. Over and over again, they've said this, God's judgment is coming, and Babylon represented the judgment of God and that destruction into exile. But not only did God do that, God also told them, God also told them that he would deliver them. God also told them that he would deliver them. Some 200 years before Cyrus came or was even born, we were told of his deliverance. Excuse me for a minute. Let me call. shave my beard and everything's falling apart. <laughs> Thank you, Allison. We were told of his deliverance. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. Isaiah, 200 years before Cyrus would come, it says this. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose? saying of Jerusalem, she shall be rebuilt, and of the temple, its foundation shall be laid again. Isaiah, before Cyrus is even born, before 200 years before the exile and the destruction of Babylon, he says there's going to come one named Cyrus that the Lord is going to raise up, and he will help the people rebuild their temple by sending them back. In other words, judgment by Babylon was in God's hands. He said, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to use Babylon to do it. I'm going to use the nations to do it. But not only that, deliverance by Cyrus is in God's hands as well. 
The judgment of God because of sin is in his hands, and the deliverance of God is in his hands. And God has the nations and its leaders at his disposal to do whatever he wishes, whatever he had them to do. We've seen this as a theme throughout all of the prophets. The theme is that God is sovereign over all things in the nations, its leaders, and everything else. All of creation is at his disposal to be used as he wishes. So upon Cyrus's decree to go back and rebuild the temple, not all left. 50,000 or so jumped up and said, let's go. 50,000. During those 70 years, many had made their life in Babylon. That's where they lived. That's where they belonged. But 50,000 said, we want to return. And in 538 BC, they returned. Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua were the leaders, sending them back, going back as the leaders to go. Immediately, they did what Cyrus told them to do. They began to rebuild the temple. Within two years, they had the foundation laid, they had the altar rebuilt, and worship started happening again, all within those first two years. Then trouble started. The Samaritans heard of them rebuilding. They came down and, and posed as if they wanted to help, when in reality, they only wanted to hurt. They were told no, but they began to, to, to mistreat those who were building. They began to, to put fear in those who were rebuilding this temple. They didn't want it rebuilt in Jerusalem, so they began to antagonize them. And Ezra 4, Ezra chapter 4, tells us of this antagonism that comes from the Samaritans, so much so that they had to carry weapons as they were rebuilding, hoping not to be destroyed or killed by them. And this pressure that was put on the Israelites caused them just to stop the work all together. They just quit rebuilding. By the way, this often happens, right? We get excited about something in our first few moments of, of God working and doing something in our life. We are excited about it. We have God work and do something for the next week. We spend time with him. We read his word. We do others. But then the fear of the world creeps in. And time begins to, to be an enemy to us, taunting us with all the other things that we have to do in life and everything else. And before long, we stop doing what God has called us to do when we start being found in everything else. That's where Haggai picks up. For 16 years, they stopped building the temple of God and they started investing in their own places, building their own houses, putting up their own things but not God's house. It took another king, Darius. Darius took the place of Cyrus. He recognized what has happened. And in Ezra chapter six, it tells us that Darius told the Samaritans to stand down and he protected the Israelites from the Samaritans. And he told the, the, the Israelites, get back to work, reestablishing re and rebuilding your temple. And it's at this point that Haggai, along with Zechariah, were raised up by God to reignite the people's enthusiasm for the work to reignite their, their enthusiasm for the importance of what they were sent back to do. The book of Haggai is a call to the people of God to get back to work, to get back to work. Prophets tell us, us people, prophets tell us to either stop doing something, sin, or start doing something, obedience. And so the call here is not just a, a stop sinning other than your sin of omission by not doing the work has led you to all of your problems and all of your insufficiencies in life. Get to doing God's work again. 
Haggai is a call to do something. But let me note this. This is the second smallest book in the Old Testament. 38 verses, only shortened, uh, shorter is Obadiah. But in this little small book of 38 verses, we have the highest concentration of the phrase, the Lord of hosts. I read that passage earlier just for that point. It says it some six times in just five verses there. 200 times in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts is used. It's a statement of God's sovereignty, his power. He's over all things. The hosts are at his disposal, if you will. It's a statement of his authority. And here, just in this small little book, it's used over 20 times. Haggai's point is he's calling us to do something, but it's not just simply a message from him. It's a message that carries the authority of the Lord of hosts behind it. It's the authority of the Lord of all creation, as he says. And so in other words, this divine authority of God is seen in this human call of Haggai. And God's word is given through him. And what do we know about God's word? It stands forever. And so for us today, as we come through this inspired word of God given through the prophet Haggai, I believe this word is a call for us to get to work as well. God's word and his authority is for all time over all people. This is a call to us. And so let's put it this way. First, it's a call to put God first in all things. It's a call to put God first in all things. We have been given the resources of God, and we are to be good stewards of those resources. If you look back in chapter 1, we see verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Just, just think for a moment, and that's, that's what I ask you. Just think for a moment your ways. And notice what God said. He's saying, I have supplied you with all that you need. First and foremost, you must build my kingdom. Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. God is saying, I have blessed you with everything you need, and yet you're taking all of your time and all of your talents and all of your money, and you're using it for yourself and not putting me first. Time, you have sown much, but you have little. Your talents, you have, at verse four, you have built paneled house, houses. You're a great craftsman to build panel houses only for yourself while the house of God lays in ruin. Your money, you earn wages, you receive money, but you're piling them into bags that have holes in them, and it's never enough. He's saying, you're using all the things I have blessed you with. You're using all of my gifts, all of my talents, and all of my resources that I have blessed you with. Because what we know is that God has supplied them all, and all things come from his hand. There's not one thing that we have that has not been given to us. The Apostle Paul asked this to the Romans. What do you have that has not been received? There's not one thing we have for the very breath that we breathe is a gift from God. The very fact that our heart is beating is a gift from God. Our talents, our time, all of these things are gifts from God. And every single penny we earn or we have is because God has blessed us with it. 
It all comes from him, he says this. And what's happened is, God has been generous to you, Haggai says, and you've become stingy. And there is no place for God's people to be stingy. God is generous. You're stingy. Look at the results. You eat and you're never full. You got clothes and you're never warm. You drink, it's not enough. You earn money, it just goes through your hands into somewhere and provides you nothing that you need. You think maybe in your mind that you've got to take care of yourself, but there's no greater affront to God than for you to think that you have to take care of yourself. Because God says, I clothe the flowers in the field. God says, I make sure the sparrows eat. How much more am I going to take care of my people? So seek you first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added. God is saying to them, you have taken the very generosity that I've given you and you are putting it on yourself. You're putting yourself first. God say, put me first. Put me first. He supplied us with everything needed to build his kingdom and be satisfied. And my friends, this is no prosperity gospel because prosperity gospel gives you some sense that if you do something, then your circumstances are going to be okay. Then everything's going to be fine and you won't suffer and you won't have hardship and you won't have pain. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is when you put God first, then satisfaction comes in spite of your circumstances. Satisfaction comes in your suffering. Satisfaction comes in your pain. It comes when you even have grade and you have a lot, you recognize that I'm satisfied because God has blessed me with this. He's saying, you're looking for something you cannot find. You want to sow? Verse seven, go up to the hills, bring down wood, build the house. I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. Look for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. You built your houses, I can knock them down with a breath. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each one of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I've called for a drought on the land of the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man, on beast. All of their labors, the Lord says, all of that's in my control, not yours. Put me first, he says. And so we see that call, and then verse 12, it tells us, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shutiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. And the Lord their God sent him, and the people feared the Lord. In other words, the people heard the call to put God first, and they recognized that they considered their ways, that what they have done has been an affront to God and who he is. They're living in the paneled houses. His house is in ruin. Put God first. He cares for us. He watches over us. We are not satisfied because we have not put him first. So they obeyed. In fact, verse 15 tells us, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius, if we were to take that precise moment and move it to our modern calendar, that's September 21st, 520 BC. They showed up for work. They made the decision, we're going to put God first here. We're going to put God first. And as Ezra chapter 6 verse 14 says, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet. They put God first and he prospered them. 
Now when they drank, they had their fill. When they ate, they kept them full. Their clothing kept them warm. Their money, their earnings, everything else was satisfactory to them because they put God first. They put God first. That didn't mean they didn't have trouble. Even as they built many of their own to try to discourage the work. If you look there in chapter 2, verse 3, tells us, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? What happened was the older people, I'm not talking about anybody in here, y'all don't worry about it, that were there back in the old days, some 70 years before, said, man, that old temple was prettier than this one. That older temple was nicer. Man, that one, look at this sorry temple that we have here. What, this is new stuff? This is sorry. That older, that older temple had much more glory. The older ones remembered the first magnificent temple of Solomon. And this one's not as nice. They began to complain to discourage the work. But the Lord says to those who are building... He encouraged them with this, work for I am with you. Work for I am with you. What we must recognize is far greater than the former glory of whatever has. And if the church, let me just step off for a second here. If the church is holding on to its past as its glory and they're living in the presence without the presence of God, then it is dead and useless. The Lord says, you keep working for I'm with you for what makes this temple glorious is the presence of the holy God who dwells in it. Not the bricks and the stone and the mortar. What makes it glorious is the presence. And hear me when I say this. We need people who do not say it's not like it used to be, but rather say if God is with us, who can stand against us? Tell me what to do. Tell me where to work. Tell me how to build. I'm here. I'm ready. God's presence is here. Let's get to work for his glory. I love the church. I've been in it my whole life. I love talking about old days. Y'all know this. My family keeps a chart of how many Andy Griffith episode illustrations I use in my sermons. I love those things. But if we dwell in those old days, we will miss God's presence and blessing in this day. And what happened here for Haggai is he says to the people, you keep looking back there to the past. Look here now, God is present. God is with us. So how about you? Is God first in your life? Time, talents, finances, is God first? If he's not first and you're pursuing something you'll never find, put God first and everything else is added to us. That's Haggai's call. And the people obeyed and he prospered them. But not only is that a call to put God first, it's a call to live and work for the nations. To live and work for the nations. We seek to build God's kingdom. We seek to build God's kingdom, not just for us, but so that all the nations will know the presence of God. In other words, the Israelites are building this temple. And remember, in their, in their understanding and, and what God had shown them is the temple represented God's presence in their midst. 
That's where you went to worship. That's where you went to sacrifice. God's presence was in that holy of holies, right? That's where he dwelt with his people. His presence represented the temple itself. The temple represented his presence. We know that. And God's intention has always been not just for his presence to be among his people, the Israelites, but for his presence to be into the nations and for the nations to know his glory. And here it says this, I will shake all the nations in verse seven so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, we're rebuilding this temple, not just for you guys, but so that everybody will know the presence of God from all nations and all tribes and all peoples. They will know his presence. You're not just working for yourself. You're working for the glory of God and for the hope of the nations, in other words. For the hope of the nations. Now this speaks to two things. This rebuilding of the temple speaks to two things. And we're going to take it to our meaning for us. It's talking about or pointing us to the coming of the Messiah. The importance of the temple is seen as the place to meet God. But recognize in John chapter 2, whenever they were talking about Jesus after he cleansed the temple. And they said something about that to him. And Jesus looked at him and he said what? Tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they said, it took us 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? And then it gives us this little parenthetical note. They didn't know he was talking about himself after his resurrection. In other words, the place that we meet God now, after the coming of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, is not in a building at all. We meet God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where we find his presence. That's where we find our hope. That's where we find everything we long for. The peace that God gives us and the worship that we have is found in the heart of Jesus Christ. That's where we find it. Christ is the cornerstone, as Ephesians 2, of this building he's building up. And we, the church, are being built up around and on that cornerstone. We don't meet God in a temple. We meet God in a person. We don't have to take a trip to Jerusalem to find a temple to have our worship. We can come in this room together proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, worship him, find the peace and presence of God even here now. Even here now. He says down here a little bit later, they keep saying this, this, this new one is not as pretty and doesn't have as much glory. He says in verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, you think that this one's not as pretty as the last one? Wait till you see coming the beautiful, glorious temple presence, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the one that's greater. And when Jesus is the place that we find the Lord, all the nations will be welcome. Peace will be found. The presence of God is there. He's the center and heart of the worship. And what's true about this, king, this kingdom as this is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not like the temple that was knocked down by the Babylonians and, and Jerusalem that was destroyed. The temple that we are building now upon the cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus, through the power and work of his spirit working in us, that temple cannot be shaken. The Babylonians can't knock this one down again. As Hebrews chapter 12 says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with resonant reverence and awe. So as we go to the nations, we go to them on the offensive, not on the defensive. 
We go with no fear because we have the command of a resurrected king who holds the power of heaven and hell in his hands. We go to the nation standing there. Not, we're not being called as God's people to build another brick and mortar place. We're being called to build a kingdom full of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that proclaims and glories in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our work. That's our kingdom business. That's what we've been called to do. And so often we do that well for a little while and then we back off because of the fear of the world and we sit back and we manage our own things, not putting God first, not putting the work first, but recognizing that we got to take care of ourselves. And what Haggai has given to us is a call to say, no, work for God's presence is with you. Y'all know it says that the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ and his church. Gates of hell is not, gates are not an offensive weapon. It doesn't say the cannons of hell cannot prevail against us. It says the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. Gates are a defensive weapon. They're to try to keep you back and to get you from getting in somewhere. And what the Lord is saying is, we are on the offensive. Go and tell in the authority and power of the name of Christ Jesus. And those defensive weapons of hell cannot prevail against you. Go and tell. And even when it seems like we're losing, we're winning. When you read Hebrews 11, you see some of those who went before us received the dead back to life. Some of them stopped the mouths of lions. Some of them did major miracles and works in their hands, but at the same time, some of them were sown in two. And some of them lost their life for the glory of God and were burned alive, Hebrews 11 says. Sometimes it will be for God's glory that he will use us to see glorious things. Sometimes it will be for God's glory that we will, we will see suffering and even persecution but either way the kingdom of God advances and the gates of hell cannot stop it by his people working and building his kingdom this is a word of encouragement by the way this is why we want to go into the deepest and hardest places to reach because the gates of hell cannot prevail and the light of the gospel cannot be stopped by the darkness of this world work he says work it's also a call, finally, to trust the Lord who works all of his promises together to come true. Chapter 2, verse 23, the Lord tells Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you. I will make you like a signet ring, he says. The signet ring was the seal of the king. It was what you would do when you made a decree and you would put your seal on it, which made it sure that this came from your hand. You would either wear it as a ring or you would wear it around your neck. And what the Lord is saying is, Zerubbabel, I'm making you this promise today that you yourself will be like that signet ring. Whenever anyone wonders whether or not I'll do what I say I'll do, they'll look to the promises I made to you, Zerubbabel. And this signet ring carries with it two main things. One, it carries with it security. Our security is found in the fact that when we come into the worship of God, he's the one that makes us clean. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, he will cleanse us so that he can welcome us in. 
We've talked about this over and over again. It's the Lord God who prepares us to enter into his presence. It's through the blood of sacrifice that he washes us clean. He will welcome us in. We haven't done anything to, to authorize ourselves or to merit some position to get into God's presence. And if we did, we would be concerned the whole time that what we did was faulty or wouldn't work. God has done it for us. He says, I've chosen you. I've welcomed you in. I've washed you clean. You are welcome here because of that. But not only has he made us clean to come into his presence, he will not forget us either. Many of the people thought he forgotten them or had forsaken them in the exile. But they've not been forgotten. The people of God, God's children, are never forgotten. Look with me in Isaiah. I'll get you to turn here because you may need to mark this in your Bible. Because I know there are times when you may feel forsaken. I know there are times when you may feel forgotten by God and you're, you're wondering, does he know I'm here? Can he hear me? Does he, know, does he still know about Josh? Does he know my plight and my trouble? There may be times that you forget those Psalm 34 passages when it says, I called upon the Lord and he answered me. There may be times when you're in that position in your life and place, but listen to what Isaiah says. But Zion said, this is the people of God, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Here's the answer. Can a woman forget her nursing child and she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. In other words, can, can a mother forget her nursing child that she had? And you may raise your hand and say, yes, I know of an instance where a mother forgot her child. I can see that. He says, even if that's true, I'm not going to forget you. But notice what he says next in verse 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. There is a tattoo I am thankful for. For my name has been tattooed on the palm of God's hand. And he says, I will never forget you. In Mark's, as my brother Augustus Top Lady, any of y'all ever heard of Augustus Top Lady? You're talking about one of the top names of all time in history. Augustus Top Lady wrote the song Rock of Ages. He wrote another song called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. And this third verse of a debtor to mercy alone has oftentimes meant more to me than they can ever possibly imagine. Listen to what this third verse says. My name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Inscribed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given, more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Did y'all catch those last two lines? Those who have already died and gone on to be with Christ, they may be more happy than me right now, but they're not more secure than I am. Because my name already on this day has been engraved on his hand and he will never forget me. That signet ring is the Lord saying, I've made a promise to you and I will never, ever forget you. I'll never forget you. 
We're secure in Christ and he will not forget us. But that ring also carries the authority of the Lord to build his kingdom. Zerubbabel had the signet ring, which was the authority to make whatever needed to be done to get that temple that rebuilt. And what we recognize today is that signet ring also comes to us, but it comes to us not through Zerubbabel, for Zerubbabel pointed to a greater king that would come after him, and that is King Jesus, because we know our signet ring today is King Jesus himself, the one who made all the promises true, yes and amen in him. We wear his name around our neck, on our ring, across our hearts and across our foreheads as Revelation says. We wear the name of Christ Jesus and when we wear his name we have the security of being found in him and nothing can take us and separate us from him. And when we wear his name we have the authority for he has granted it to us to go into all the world, proclaim the name, baptize, teach, reach, do all that I've called you to do for my authority is with you. Build my kingdom he says. We wear his name We wear his name. The call of Haggai is a call for us to work. Put God first. You're never going to work for God if you're continually putting yourself first. And you have misunderstood. You've got a dysfunctional view of God. If you don't understand, he can take better care of you than you can. Put him first. Trust him with your time. Put him first with your talents. Hear me when I say this. Put him first with your money. Money will rule you unless you rule it with the hand of God. Put him first again to say he supplied us with all the resources needed to change the world for Jesus and the gates of hell cannot prevail. Put God first so that the nations may know and be welcomed in to his glory. Find the peace they long for. Put God first and see his promises come true every day of your life, for he will never forget you. Never. And the inheritance we have waiting for us in Christ Jesus is greater than all the treasures of this world combined. Put him first. Work. Build his kingdom. I believe in a message like this. Every single one of us in this room have a step we can take. Whether it's our time, our talents, whether it's our money, whether it's a belief and a trust that God is greater and his work is what we are about, we all have a step we can take. Consider your ways. What is it that God would have you do? to get to work to build his kingdom. We need people here in this church. He supplied us with all of our needs. We need you to do what God's called you to do here, to serve, to give your time. We need you and your talents to accomplish the task, to change the world for Jesus and build his kingdom up, to go and to reach those. We need you. We need you to recognize recognize that every bit of resources God has blessed you with, that now's not the time to be stingy, but it's the time to to give so the work of ministry and the changing of the world for the name of Jesus can happen from here and we can build up his kingdom. We need you, but recognize this. 
God doesn't need you. He has given you the privilege of joining in his work with him. Put him first. You need him. Let's pray together. Father, help us today to put you first, trust you with our life, give you all that we have, whatever it be, time, talents, resources, finances, God. May we be generous as you are generous. And I pray even now that your spirit will be working in each and every heart, in each and every life in this place. Be working in such a way to point them to what that next step is. God, work now. As your eyes are closed and your head is bowed, maybe that next step for you is today making a public statement that Jesus, the Lord God, is first in my life. If you do that, I'll be standing in the front, ready, ready to receive you with joy. Put God first in your life. Husbands, do this to show your families where your priorities are. Love your families enough to show them that God is first in all things. As we stand and sing, what is it that God would have you do? Let's stand together.